I'd like you to turn with me to page 32. And I want to just look here at how, how Jesus formed a leadership team that was able to advance the kingdom. And it's focused on Peter. He's the central figure in all this, okay? And I've, I've listed some steps here that he went through and, and every one of us, well, that's nice. I can now hear myself. Can you hear me? These are, these are crisis steps that we will go through and it'll determine whether we get to the place where we are usable by Jesus for a city-taking team. Now, so let's turn to that uh, passage or, or, or page 32. And I'm, I'm not going to spend some time on, on some of them but because we touched on some of them the other day. The first encounter with Peter was when Andrew brought his brother Peter to Jesus and Jesus prophesied over him the change of name. Do you remember that? But I just want to add one extra detail and that was this, that that first encounter caused Peter to change his mind about who Jesus was. And that's often where people come through the kind of gospel that we preach. And we need to recognize that's what's happened to them. Because if you'd met Peter, let's say, let's say Peter met Jesus on Wednesday. And Peter was not some, you know, saint. He was just a, a tobacco-chewing, swearing fisherman. That's how I want you to picture him. Just an earthy sort of guy that hadn't got any time for religion. He got a brother, Andrew, who was a bit strange and had liked all that sort of stuff. But he had, the, he had a wife to keep, a family to run, a business to run. And if you'd asked Peter on Tuesday, what do you think of Jesus? He said, oh, I haven't got time for all that. I hear about him, but I haven't made up my mind. I don't know who he is. I don't really much care because I've got these present-day real things to worry about. I haven't got time to think about those things. Then he meets Jesus, and in his encounter with Jesus, the way Jesus looked at him and spoke to him, he makes a decision. This guy's the Christ. You know? And so if you'd met Peter on Thursday he would have a different opinion about who Jesus was, but his life would be totally unchanged. Still chewing tobacco, still swearing. If he used to uh, fiddle the, the, the weight of the fish to make a bit more money, he was still doing it. The life was not changed, just his, his opinion about Jesus was changed. The second thing I want you to notice was this, that in that passage in John, the initiative is with them all the time. They came to him. They found Jesus. They said, in other words, they have made a decision about him. Now, so often in the preaching of the gospel, we, we tend to produce that sort of response. We get people to make a decision about Jesus. And, uh, uh, and he's offered as a... For, you know, as various answers to our needs. Anybody hurting, Jesus will make you feel better. All of it's true. But it's inadequate, that's all. Amen. So that's step one. And if we 
preach that sort of gospel and produce those kind of conversions, we produce a grass hut. We do not produce building material that Jesus can use to build the kingdom. And it has no power, no authority against the gates of hell. We spend all our time then running around like a wet nurse with bottles of milk trying to keep these people from dying. Amen? Then the next, next visit was when Jesus came. Now, it's not them coming to Jesus, it's him coming to them. At the point when the, the, the John the Baptist ministry was brought to an end, and then just for a little while there was an overlap, and Jesus began to preach the kingdom. And he said, now this is good news, and you've got to believe it. And here's the good news, from now on, you're going to have no rights of your own, no life of your own. It's a total despotic takeover by the living God. And as a result, he's going to change your life. Isn't that fantastic? Who wants it? <laughs> and, and, and you see, the Lord has no intention of helping you to live a, a better life. He has every intention of totally killing you. <laughs> In the natural sense, amen? He'll slay everything that's of the flesh, and he's ruthless about it. So it's a complete takeover. But that's exactly what we need to be released from sin, released from the devil's power, and now become usable in the kingdom. Because if we're going to be advancing the kingdom, it's obviously got to start with us. If the kingdom hasn't come to me, how on earth can I be presumptuous enough to think I can start bringing the kingdom into society? Yet many Christians are doing that. They're living independent lives, and expecting them to be able to bring the kingdom into a rebellious society. So it's got to begin with me. So the bottom line is, Lord, from now on, your will is going to be done in my life the way your will's done in heaven, which is perfectly. When uh, the archangel Gabriel came to Zacharias to bring him the good news that his wife Elizabeth was going to have a child supernaturally after many, many years of barrenness. And the Bible tells us that he'd been praying for this. But he was used to praying the kind of prayers that never got answered. He was praying his desires. He wasn't praying his expectations. Hello. When they prayed for Peter uh, in Acts 12, they got the shock of their life when their prayers were answered. They said, it can't be. Oh, it is, you see. So Zechariah gets this news from, from Gabriel and says, uh, you're gonna have, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. He's going to be full of the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He's going to be great. He's going to do this and do that. And, and, and Zechariah says, um, hmm, how do I know this will happen? And the angel's faith, I can see his jaw drop in total incredulity and say, we don't talk that way in heaven. As if, I, he, said, he said, I've just come from the presence of God. And I've come to bring you what God said, and you're saying, how can these things be? I mean, the, the shock of it was so unbelievable to heaven, because heaven never thinks that way, never talks that way. It doesn't have to have things explained to it in order for it to be intellectually satisfying before it can receive it. And one of the great problems with the Western world is that our tripartite, being, which is body, soul, and spirit, and the, the natural mind and the, the, the area of reason is being highly developed because of the way that we are trained in school, but our spirit is absolutely minuscule. And we've got a, a massive intellect, relatively, well-developed, 
and it thinks through all the problems and all the difficulties and won't budge an inch until those rational objections are satisfied. So the first instinct of a Western trained mind is, how can these things be? Come, prove it to me, show it to me. And when I'm intellectually persuaded, then I'm prepared then to move into the practicality of it. But what you find in Africa, particularly, is Africa is so used to the spirit world, however dark and demonic it was, the spirit world to them is utter reality. And they have a much greater developed spirit. And in some cases, although they may not have had a great education, and they've not been trained to think intellectually, they've got a spirit this big, and maybe their intellect's only that big, because it's not that they're unintelligent, but it's not been trained to think in the doubting ways of Westernism. So as a result, they can receive the truth of God. Now, I didn't realize this at the time, but I realized, mainly because when I started to move in Africa and India, I, well, Africa particularly, they said, you don't preach like a Westerner, you preach like an African, which I considered to be a great compliment. And, and they said, you have a simplicity that Western preachers never, ever seem to have. You, you don't doubt. You, you're like us. And, and I thought, this is great. But what I realized was that, that in terms of spiritual training, I was brought up in India, not in England. I went to India when I was three years old in Christ and I met real demons that roared at me in real demonic situations and, and I lived in an atmosphere of demonic strength and power. So almost from those early days, I learned to wrestle and deal with the reality of the spirit world. I saw all kinds of dark, demonic, incredible, real manifestations of the evil spirit world. And so as a result, I've got a, a sort of Indian stroke African spirit rather than a Western spirit, and I thank God for that. You hear what I'm saying? So I think if we, if, if we who've been brought up in the West, trained in the West, educated in the West, and all our Christian experience is Western church, we've got to recognize we've got a handicap. And this is brought out, I believe, in this. And so we come to the place then where we do not do anything so foolish as to question God. What a response. Well, you think about it. An archangel comes from the presence of God and says, says Zacharias, you're highly to be favored. He says, well, how do I know this will happen? <laughs> Isn't that terrible? So, so if the kingdom really comes to us, and, and, and it's interesting, I counted this up one time, if I remember correctly, I counted it up in the scriptures, how many times Jesus commanded his disciples, and how many times the word command is used in the epistles. I think it came to 357 times. It's a military term where your only response is, yes sir. Now, if we, if we will, that's the kingdom. When God says something, yes, sir. And if we can get that in to us, then from that foundation of the kingdom coming to us, we can then bring the kingdom into our family, into the church, and then only finally can we have the ability to bring the kingdom into society. So this was an important issue with Peter. And he, we read it, they left their nets and followed him. And he said, yes, sir, as best he knew how. Now come on to the next page. 
33, and we want to come to number 3. Now, the last thing we read about in Mark is that Peter has left his nets, left everything to follow Jesus, and now what do we find in Luke chapter 5? We find Peter back at fishing. And actually, if you go through the Gospels, you'll find that happens no less than four times. And I'm only going to speculate here, but what I suspect was this, that Peter, who's an expert fisherman and knew how to just read the wind and the waves and the tide and where to go and where the fish would be, and he was a real expert fisherman, when he went out, because what was said to them when they came into the kingdom, he said, he said uh, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. There's a commandment with promise. If anybody follows Jesus, he's given them a guaranteed promise that they will catch men. Amen? Is that not there? And it's the first promise made. That's before anything else. If you follow me, you're going to become a fisher of men. So if we are unsuccessful in winning people to Christ, then it seems like the first promise has failed, and at least it ought to concern us. Say, well, this Christianity isn't working. Why am I not catching men? These are the sort of questions we ought to be asking. But how many times are these questions asked? I've been, I've been a Christian now for four weeks and I haven't led anybody to Christ. What's the matter with me? Now, that's not the immediate response of the new converts in our churches because of the way that they are programmed not to expect to be successful in catching people. But again, in Africa and in India, we're programming in such a different way that that would be the expectation. And because that's the expectation, there is the success. And, every, and when we were in South Korea, every home group that, that Mujongi Cho has, their expectation was to multiply by conversion growth. And if they didn't see that happen, it deeply concerned them. And they would go for three or four days prayer and fasting to find out why they weren't normal Christians. Listen to me. I'm serious. But we've come into a place of such non-expectancy and because that's the norm, everybody accepts the norm and we go for years without anybody coming to Jesus. Now I suspect that Peter went out in his own efforts to go and catch men and found that he wasn't too successful and so he went back to fishing, back to what he was good at. And there's a lot of people in our churches and there's a lot of people who were in ministry, people who stepped out into various forms of ministry and when they found it wasn't successful, they went back to what they were good at. Often a man will retreat back into his career and he won't be so zealous about attending church. Why? Because when he tried to do the things in the, in the kingdom, he didn't see immediate success because he was doing them the wrong way, so he retreats back to what he's good at. A woman, a mother, will often retreat into her home and she finds fulfillment in the kids and what the family, and so the fact that she's not seeing any success in the kingdom is the, the pain of that is softened by finding alternative things to be involved in. And if you've got a lot of half-committed people, you may find that that's the root of the problem. And I believe that's what happened to Peter. He went back to fishing. He said, well, I tried to catch 
men for, I don't know, I think it's about, I worked out once it's somewhere between about six and eight months. He thought, well, it didn't work for me, so I'm going to go back to fishing, catching fish, because at least I know what I'm doing there. And he stopped attending the prayer meetings, stopped coming to all the meetings because his business was demanding his time. He became a bit peripheral, a bit half-hearted because he was back at the fishing. Now, that's a picture of so many people in our churches. Amen? Now, if you go and scold them, it's the worst thing that you can do. Notice what Jesus did, because already that sense of failure is already there. They don't need another blow to tell them how useless they are or how uncommitted they are. They're already feeling bad about the way they're living, but they, they've lost the, the, the faith and the passion to be kingdom people. What Jesus did, he went to where Peter was fishing. And he, he got Peter to push out a little bit from the shore, used Peter's boat as a, as a pulpit to preach from. And when Jesus started preaching, the old fire that Peter had lost began to come back to him. There wasn't a word of condemnation. He didn't say, what are you doing fishing? I thought you'd given everything to follow me. There was none of that kind of language. And often a lot of the, the confrontation in Christian circles is so harsh that it has the opposite effect of what it's supposed to have. It drives people away. It doesn't bring them back. So be careful of that sort of honesty of confrontation. When some brother hasn't, hasn't done his job or some sister hasn't done what she should do, the big finger comes out and, and it gives a total false picture of what God is really like. Jesus just comes, says, Hi Peter, great to see you. Haven't noticed you in the meetings lately. He doesn't even say that, but that's what he's thinking. But you just sit there and you're going to hear a message that's going to change your life. And as Peter listens to it, that spirit that's still in him starts to get fired and stirred up. And then Jesus says, all right now, let's go out and, 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 have a, and try and get a catch. And they go out and they, Peter says, oh, but we've, we've, we've fished all night and caught nothing. Because see, what God has done, he's made even his success in fishing a failure because he wants to shut the guy up into a corner. He said to all the fish, you go up into the lake and stay there till I call you. So when, when a guy tries to go back into his business, it wasn't successful like it used to be. And he says, well, nevertheless, at your, at your word, we will get, drop the line. So he drops the net. You know the story. He gets such a catch, it almost sinks the boat. He has to call James and, and, and John to come and help him. And then these are these interesting words, which uh, I want you to see. Luke chapter 5. It's, I think it's verse 8, if I remember correctly. Come to Luke chapter 5. Verse 7, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so they began to sink. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. What he saw, and I hope you've seen this, he saw the sinfulness of trying to be a worker for God rather than being a worker together with God. He tried so hard to be successful, but he was using his own efforts and abilities, and it was a complete failure. So Jesus was now using this fishing picture to be a picture of his attempts to be a spiritual fisherman with equal non-success. And the key was to drop the net down at his word. And he saw it in a flash, and he said, Lord, 
I'm incredibly sinful, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And I wonder whether you have really come, or people have really come to the place where you realise to serve God in your own efforts is absolutely useless. If you're a motivated person, if you're a driver, you will often drive yourself and drive other people to get the thing done, and it isn't really God, it's you wanting to see success. You want it for Jesus, and you're working for Jesus, but you're not conscious of the life of dependency where you literally become a worker together with God. You've not seen the sinfulness of this disguised self-life. Now, we often think of the flesh as indulgent to the flesh, but one of the most subtle forms of the flesh is to be self-sufficiently religious or self-sufficiently active in Christian things. And I know people who are very gifted in music. And I've heard the testimony of some of them, some that I love dearly, where they came to a point where they were such gifted musicians that they played music for God and they, 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 they were so prideful of this great gift that they had. And God said to this particular guy, I don't want you to touch the piano again until you change your attitude. And he said, I went for 10 years not touching a musical instrument until every passion and desire to be a great musician for God died. And then he said, right, now you can pick it up again and instead of playing for me, I'm going to play through you. And often the areas of our greatest competence are our areas of greatest danger. Because that's where we think we can stand on our own feet and that's where we often do stand on our own feet. But when we see the sinfulness of it, and I, I mean, I'm thinking of testimonies, I think I mentioned it yesterday, or was it today, about Hudson Taylor. He said, for 20 years, I did my best to work for God. Then I finally came to an end of myself. I couldn't continue any longer. God said, good. He said, for 20 years, I've been trying to live my life through you. And for 20 years, you've not let me because you're so busy living your life for me. Now, have you seen the sinfulness of that? And have you got on your knees and repented and said, God, I never, ever want to try and serve you or organize programs or events or whatever it is, evangelistic efforts, this, that. I want none of these things to be done in my best efforts for you. I don't want to do them unless I know it's you orchestrating them through me. I've seen the sinfulness of it. And once... Peter came to that kind of repentance. Jesus' reply was, he said, don't be afraid, Peter. From now on, you will be catching me. Amen? A worker for God or a worker with God? Come to number four. I want to cover these as quickly as I can. Some of them I'm going to leave out. Recognizing and receiving headship. When Peter got the revelation of who Jesus was, and Peter said, Peter, you are blessed and to be envied because your father, my father's revealed this to you. And so Peter thought, wow, that's great. I'm now getting revelation. This can happen to someone who begins to move in a genuine and powerful prophetic ministry. You can get to the place where you think now it's your job to correct your leader. Listen to me. And sometimes in certain situations, anointed prophetic people because they get this deception, they start to become the, seek to be the controllers of the leader that God's appointed, and instead of being a blessing, they become a menace. 
And Peter, as we know, when Jesus talked about going to the cross, he said, oh, no, 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 that's not the right way. And actually, he was speaking the very words of Satan. Amen? We looked at this the other day. I want you to see what Jesus did, because he didn't um, hit him, or he just said, get behind me, Satan, which was quite strong, really, when you think about it. But the next thing he did was this. Let me ask you a question at this point. Who were the strongest people in the team that he was putting together? Who were the outstanding leaders? Peter, James, and John. Everybody says that. They were the three that stand up. Peter, James, and John. And they, were, they were, had family competitive problems. They had all kinds of problems. But these were the strong guys. And I've got a principle which I want to share with you here. And that is that the strongest horses are the hardest to break in. If you get strong, very able people on your team, you can do one of two things. You can let them run riotously loose and they'll wreck the church, or you can so discipline them that they can't stay with you, they'll leave you to go to someplace else. Neither is the correct way to deal with this problem, but to deal with it the way that Jesus did. He said, Father, will you show these guys who I am? Every time Moses was challenged concerning his leadership, he just fell on his knees and prayed and let God deal with the problem. Now, that is what Jesus does here. I used to think for years that when Jesus took Peter, James, and John onto a mountain by themselves, it was showing them that they were the favoured three in the twelve. But I realise now it wasn't that at all. Jesus was dealing with the naughty boys. He said, come up. And notice he did it in private. He didn't do it in front of the other 12 or the rest of the 12. He said, come up to a mountain apart by yourself and you are going to have a meeting with my father that's going to change your attitude to me. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, they see Elijah and Moses, they see Jesus in some degree of his true glory and it's so overwhelming they fall flat on their faces and they can hardly stand the sight of it and then to cap that a voice comes from heaven and says this is my beloved son hear him <laughs> and never again in the gospels do you find them ever challenging the headship of Jesus and settle it once for all and I believe it's absolutely necessary for not only for people to get a revelation of who Jesus is, but they need to get a revelation of the God appointment of their leader. I think it's as important for a leader to say to his team as it was for Jesus and his team, who do you say that I am? And they've got to be able to say, I know that God put you in this place and you are anointed and appointed by God. Now that's the revelation which will give you the security to lead them. Can you hear what I'm saying? Now that's not idolatry. I'm not suggesting that you think anything of yourself, but it just clears the air about who God's appointed to lead around here. And they've got to be able to say it. And if they can't say it, then I would not trust them with leadership. That may sound harsh, but I tell you, I'm speaking from 40 years or more of experience and watching what happens when this dynamic is not understood in a team. They never question him again. So I'm asking you, if you are following a leader, have you had that revelation? With, with his faults and shortcomings, you see, the mighty men of David never doubted that God had appointed him to lead. 
even though they could find faults with him, that didn't disqualify him because he righteously dealt with every one of those faults. He was the most repentant and the guy that so quickly changed that they couldn't find fault with the way that he responded. Next one. I'm going to be as quick as I can. Next one. I'm going to call that the offence test. John chapter 6. Jesus is experiencing a wave of popularity after a great miracle. He preaches to the multitude a controversial and offensive message. He's talking to Jewish people and he says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Here's Peter with his fantastic crowd. I thought, my, boy, when we take the offering, it's going to be incredible. If Jesus just handles it right, he can really get them to give a good offering. We can live in comfort for weeks off this. And then Jesus gets up and preaches this message which absolutely causes a large majority to leave before the offering's taken. <laughs> and Peter gets offended, like everybody else. He's tempted to leave like everybody else, but he makes a decision. There's no place else for me to go. Because I'm certain and I'm sure who you are. God showed me supernaturally who you are. And I tell you this, every leader of every work of God, every church of God, he will consciously or inadvertently offend everybody. Jesus succeeded totally in offending everybody. <laughs> his mother, his family, the scribes, the Pharisees, his disciples, there wasn't anybody left out. They all got thoroughly offended by the perfect one. So what chance do you think you've got not to offend people? You're going to cause offence. And those that are going to be part of a city-taking team, they will learn to handle the offence the offense, without it becoming an issue of separation. Hello, can you hear me? Peter passed the offence test. And really, I would not feel secure with a leadership team that haven't seen the worst in me and still decided to love me and follow me. Then I feel secure. Well, I can't mess up any more than I have. And they still love me. They're still following me. I feel secure now. But if they're going to follow me on the basis of my performance, then we're all on dangerous ground. Okay? Next one. Do you understand that? Peter passed the offence test. Now, number seven, the faith test. I'll just say this very, very quickly. I've not time to develop this, but you'll find that Jesus only gives ever one reason for failure. Why couldn't we? The response is, because of your unbelief. Why didn't it? Because of your unbelief. There's only, and that's the one thing that made him mad was unbelief. He upbraided them for their unbelief. He said, oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe. You know, what's the matter with you guys? That's the one thing where you see the nearest to Jesus losing his temper. And it was to Peter that Jesus said in Mark 11, when he cursed the fig tree, and I think you've, all of you have seen me do this or enact it, it it's, the, it's in what's called the genitive case, and it's also in what's called the passive voice, which means that what Jesus was saying was, Peter, you have to receive as a free gift from God, the very gift of God. Here you are, Peter, here's the ball, catch it. And Peter caught God's faith, and by the power of the faith that God gave him, he started to move in the faith that Jesus had. But without faith, it was impossible 
to be any use to Jesus on the leadership team. Romans chapter 12 verse 3 says, Paul, I want each of you to have a sober evaluation of yourself according to the measure of faith that Christ has dealt you. That's all I'm going to say. There's sets of tapes on that. If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, get the sets of tapes, one on the fight of faith or great faith or mustard seed faith. They all help us to understand this truth. Number eight, the power to pray test. Jesus teaches the five levels of prayer. Luke 11, we've already looked at this. Only one disciple said, Lord, teach me how to pray, and it wasn't Peter. When Jesus got them to wait with him for one hour, Peter fell asleep. He was a total failure as a prayer warrior until the Spirit came in the upper room. All he did was to go to the upper room and stay there because Jesus said he was, and the Spirit taught him how to pray. If you go through the book of Acts, you'll find again and again the prayer life of Peter is now very similar to the prayer life of Jesus. And as a result, the works and miracles of Peter are very similar to the works and miracles of Jesus. So he went from utter failure to success because he let the Holy Spirit teach him. Once the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, it wasn't long before Peter was learning to pray. Next one, number nine. After Jesus appeared to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration and they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, which we read about in Matthew 17. Now come to Matthew 18, please. And come to verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus took a little child, set him in the midst of them and said, Listen to me, I really mean this, guys. Unless you are converted, unless you change your mind, unless you stop thinking corporate America, unless you stop thinking like the world and become like little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. Now, no less than seven times, and I've listed all the scriptures for you, and I suggest that you meditate on these, seven times the disciples came together with or without Jesus. They debated, they discussed, they argued which of them was going to be the greatest. And James and John, with their mother, made a real pitch to be number two and three after Jesus in the kingdom. And he kept, he kept rebuking them. He kept saying, look, Come and see it like a little child. So seven times Jesus taught the same thing and seven times they ignored it because they weren't going to die to their competitive nature. And then at the lake after Jesus had failed miserably, Jesus teaches Peter about love. Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm not time to go into the detail, but before Pentecost, even after the resurrection, James, I'm sorry, John and Peter didn't really like each other. Even as Peter was walking on the lakeside with Peter and ministering to him about how by the power of the Spirit he could love men the way he was supposed to love, he could love God the way he was supposed to love, he had this great sense of failure, he was amazed to find that the love for Jesus hadn't changed at all because he never loved him on the basis of his performance. And the great truth dawning on him, hey, he, he really loves me. I haven't got to put on an act. I've not got to pretend. I can just be me. And God says, oh, I love you. Now, while this is going on, and Peter has his first intimacy 
with Jesus, because Jesus and Peter, although they were on the same team, you never find them getting close to each other, because Peter always felt that little bit, well, I don't think I'm really accepted like the other guys. And he would hang on the fringe. When it came to ask Jesus a personal question, he told John to ask the question, because John was more intimate with Jesus than he was. They had all kinds of relational problems. Think about Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot, the freedom fighter. What did they think of each other? There's all kinds of dynamics, all kinds of interaction. And, and until this team was mightily visited with the love of God and all the barriers and reservations broke down between them, there was no way this team was going to take the city. And as Jesus walks on the lakeside with Peter, John sees them and his, his reaction is not, all oh, praise the Lord, Peter's getting close to Jesus, but hey, that guy's stealing my position. What are they talking about? I bet that Peter, you can't trust him an inch. Peter looks back, sees John following and says, can you feel the love in this? What's he following us for? Can you feel the sparks between these two guys? Now, if you go through all the Gospels, you never find Peter and John doing anything together because they didn't really like each other. They go into the upper room, and in those 10 days, which the Spirit says, it's none of your business what went on there, so we're told nothing. All we know is that what came out of the upper room was totally different to what went in. And one of the things that happened was that all these undercurrents of division and, and offence and pushing for the right position and not liking each other, it all vanished away. And these guys became absolutely one. From the day of Pentecost, it was Peter and John, Peter and John, Peter and John together. Peter had now become a team man who wasn't caring about himself, he was caring about the kingdom, about the Lord Jesus, he didn't care where he fitted in, didn't care whether he preached or not, just so long as the kingdom came. When Peter stood up to preach the first sermon, the other 11 guys went to the restaurant. Is that what happened? No, it says Peter stood with the 11. They were as involved with that message as if it was theirs. I've been to too many conferences where you're one of the big speakers and each big speaker wants to have the best message, sell more types than the other guy. They don't have any fellowship, they don't come near each other, they come from their hotel room, sit in the green room, it's usually a green room for some reason, go on, perform, and then leave and go home. They don't want to talk to anybody. But this is something totally different. They, 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 the 11... It was like a rugby scrum. Peter, you might be doing the speaking, but we're part of the message. We're here with you, man. It's one team. It's one united heart. And you're just the voice of our unity, unified passion. I've not time to deal with the rebuke and chastening test. It would take far too long. The foot washing test, I'm not going to touch that. It would take far too long. I'm going to go to the last thing and we're going to close. Come to Matthew, it's number, well, number 12, it's not the last on my list, but it's, it'll do. The flesh and the spirit test, especially when it comes to love. You see, what Jesus did when he walked on the lakeside with Peter, he made, he, as you know, I'm sure most of you know this, that there are three Greek words for love. There's Eros, which is physical love. There is philia, which is soul love. And then there is um, 
agape, which is love of the spirit. Now, agape has got a definition which is it, it, it's of the spirit, it doesn't need any response, it's ruthlessly and unswervingly determined to love regardless of the response. Filial love feeds on a response. If you love me, I'll love you. If you're nice to me, I'm nice to you. It's the best that human nature can produce and it can be a very lovely thing. But if, it's, if there's no response, that love can turn to hate out of hurt and offence. And many marriages which are founded on filial love end up with bitterness because we've been let down by our partner. But we have this love beautifully described in 1 Corinthians 13. And Peter did not have that love. So when Jesus and, and Peter are walking by the lakeside, Jesus doesn't say, now, Peter, do you know how to plant home groups? And can you organize a church? He said, Peter, do you love me? And he uses the word agape, or agapeo in the verbal form. Peter knows he can't say it. He's just betrayed the Lord. He just ran away through fear. See, if you live on the emotion of fear, uh, the emotion of love, that emotion of love can be overwhelmed by another emotion. And the emotion of fear swept over the emotion of love and he ran away and betrayed the Lord. And he hated himself for doing what he did, but he didn't know how to live any other way. Do you love me with divine love, Peter, that cannot ever, ever give up, won't lose its hold, won't, won't ever, it, you can, whatever you do, whatever you say, I'm going to still love you. Lord, he uses this other word, Lord, I have, a, I have an affection for you. I have a filial love for you. So Jesus asks again, Peter, do you agape me? He says, no, Lord, I have a filial for you. Then Jesus changes the word and says, Peter, do you even have filial love for me? And Peter's grieved when he asks him the third time because Peter's saying, are you sure you even got filial love for me? And he says, he says, Lord, you know my heart. I can't explain myself. I don't know why I went off into this, this terror and ran away and betrayed you because when I was up in the upper room and I was feeling great, I would have died for you then, but suddenly everything changed and I ran away. I, I don't know what's the matter with me. And he, Jesus is getting him to see the instability of this. One of the things that happened in the upper room we're told this in Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God, the agape love of God, the ability to love like God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And when that happened, then Peter could love the right way. Now, just before Jesus asked him about love, on the lakeside, Peter is out fishing again, and Jesus from the beach says, lower the net on the other side. Now, the, the boats that they used were probably not as wide as this platform, maybe 12 to 15 feet. Peter had been fishing all night and taken nothing. And Jesus says, well, just lower the net on the other side. Just 12 feet difference. And when he lowers the net, he catches this multitude of fish and he says, this is the Lord. Now, what's he teaching us? He's teaching us this, that there's just a boat width between flesh and spirit. Now, if you move in the flesh, you can toil all night and take nothing. If you move in the spirit, you'll catch something every time. And you've got to learn how to be men and women of the spirit, not of the flesh. Amen? Let me just bring this to conclusion. 13. 
Peter's delivered from his fear. I've not time to develop that, but he is. In 14, Peter passes the, the patience test. I've often wondered how many people started in the upper room and how many were still there on the 10th day. And when Peter had been all through these steps and all through these processes, and had come out the other side as a man who passed the test, then he could now be used to become a mighty man, mighty woman of God. There's one thing left. I'm going to deal with that tomorrow morning. I've kept it out deliberately because I want to take a little bit of time to make sure we see it. But the purpose of this is to say that if we go through these different steps, then this transformation can take place in our lives as much as it did in his. But if we fail in any of these steps, then we're never going to be the kind of city-taking team that God can use. So this is for us, it's for the men and women that gather around us, and if we go through this process together, what will come out the other side will be an, a city-taking, demon-destroying, invincible, mighty team that moves in all the power of God. And when God can put together a government like that, then we've got the government of David. And then this is the key of David. That government, functioning the way we've been looking at all of today, when that's put into the, into the lock situation in any city, anywhere in the world, and that key has the power to open. And no one can shut. I've set before you an open door and no one can close it. So if we, if we let this key come into the structure of our churches, if it becomes the key of David, everything's in order the way that David did it, if everything, every leader's become one of these mighty men or women, if all the steps that Jesus took Peter through have been, have we passed through that process, then what comes out the other side is an indivisible, unshakable, invincible, victorious, city-taken, demon-trampling team. When Jesus had completed that process, he said, well, I can go back to my father now. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God and said, you guys go for it. Now, he had faith for them all the time because he said, Father, I want to thank you for all those that are going to believe through their word. He had faith that they would pass the process and they would finish the job. And I believe God's got faith for every one of us in this room. Amen? So wherever we found ourselves lacking as we looked at these steps, then the Lord is able to come and by his spirit, he's able to meet our need to transform us just the way that he transformed Peter. We've just got to want it badly enough to allow the process. It was A.W. Tozer who said this once. He said, there are many people that want to become holy but they are not prepared to go through the process of being made holy. That's quite a profound statement when you think about it. Now, I want to say this. There are many people that want to become city-taking, devil-crushing teams of kingdom people, but the question is, are you prepared to go through the process? Which brings you to that place. And if we are, 
then there's not a locked situation in any of the towns or cities that we represent. There's not a locked situation in this nation that that key cannot open. Amen? It's the key of David. And we'll see the same transformation that he saw in his nation and in his society. And if we continue to produce David leaders, if David leaders produce David's sons, if Paul's produced Timothy's, and the David um, character, the Jesus character, if you like, is continued, then that door will never, ever, ever be closable. It will never be possible to shut it. Just think of, a, of the United States of America with no drug problem, with no AIDS problem, no abortion, no immoral sex between our young people. They keep themselves pure for the one person they're going to marry for life. Just imagine that. Imagine that there's no violence. I, I spoke to a lady um, just after I was converted. She was, she was converted in the Welsh Revival. She was in a mining town in Wales where it was drink, it was football, uh, soccer football, it was horse racing, and she said the place was full of crime full of wickedness, it was full of violence. She said, then, then, then the Spirit of God swept through the valley and every man and every woman, it seemed, had become powerfully converted. She said, every pub closed, every dancing hall closed, even the soccer teams couldn't play anymore because people weren't busy with soccer, they were busy out in the adjoining villages and places evangelizing in the name of Jesus. She said, in the... In the, the Magistrates court, there was no single case tried for five and a half years. There wasn't one single crime for five and a half years. She said in those days they used to have donkeys which pulled the, uh, the coal, uh, uh, um, what's the word I want, the coal trucks. And these donkeys had been trained to respond to swear words. So when everybody got converted, they had, had a problem because these donkeys did not understand the language of the kingdom. He said, going up and down in the lifts, there'll be men worshipping and praising God and praising the name of Jesus. And these donkeys had to learn to live in a totally new environment. And I believe these days are coming to the United States of America. Let's give him thanks. Let's praise him. Do we want to thank you? Thank you for... for, for the honest way that Peter is portrayed in Scripture. We thank you that we see in him so much of ourselves. We see all the shortcomings and all the weaknesses, but we thank you for that transforming work that he was willing to take place in his life. Thank you he, be, he became part of a victorious team, a city-taking team, which brought your kingdom with great power, invincibly trampling down everything which opposed it. And Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you do that amongst us. Lord, we're asking you now to give us the key of David. We want the key of David. We want the government of God. We want the power and glory of your kingdom to come. We want to get in order. We want to keep rank. We want mighty men and women to get in the proper places. Lord, we want to discover where are the Davids that you set amongst us, Lord. We want to, to give them their proper place. We want to anoint them gladly for what you've called them to be. We want to get loyally behind them and loyally round them and say, Lord, make us a mighty city-taking team. 
Let competition come to an end. Let self-seeking be no longer named amongst us. We believe that you can do for us what you did for them. And we want to thank you. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you.